six, we be in the mix with that rare candy paint job on the whip. I need food for the kids, money for the rent. Fuck a lockdown, baby, I can't do that shit. And I don't never vote, cause I'm fucking broke. And either way, I know the police ain't gon' leave me alone. On a plane by the visit, land rock, need crypto. Told me I should bring the Glock with me, so I packed up my piece and I'm sliding. Cause we might get caught up in a riot. Middle finger Trump, middle finger Biden. Fuck a left, fuck a right, is you riding? Ain't no politics, baby, we just talking From the birds to the bricks, we be in the mix With that rare candy paint job on the whip, who you with? Alright, welcome back, everyone uh, Yeah, Glenn usually does these intros I'm, I think I'm, I reckon I'm pretty bad at it <laughs> But we have, uh, we have a return guest, uh, one of our favorites One of our fan favorite as well uh, My friend Dr. Jonathan Latham Of the Bioscience Resource Project And editor of independentsciencenews.com. Is that correct? Yeah. Right Hi, on. everybody. Thanks for yeah. having me, Bob. Welcome back. Yeah, people loved your last episode. Uh, what did we talk about? We talked about the pandemic industrial comp- uh, complex and Bill Gates a lot, and it was great. Yeah, people ate it up. Yeah. Mm. How have you been since then? Uh, anything happened? Any any infections? Any... Uh... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. we were just discussing that. So, yeah, I got COVID. We all got COVID in our household. Yeah, and um, and I uh, it took me three weeks to get better from it. Yeah, so I mm-hmm. had uh, you know bad fatigue basically yeah. and brain fog, couldn't think straight really. Yeah, tiredness, uh, limb aches, cough, headaches, kind of classic yeah. symptoms. But I yeah. don't know if I had the Omicron or the the um, uh, Delta. Seemed yeah. more Delta to me given the media reports of mild Omicron, because it wasn't particularly mm-hmm. mild. I mean, yeah. I, I wasn't in danger of going to hospital or anything. But yeah. um, but it didn't feel mild. I slept 12 hours a night and many hours during the day. So I was pretty wow. wiped out. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, that seems to be the thing is it kind of just drags on for a long time for a lot of people. Same with me. You know, yeah, I feel, you know, a lot of people kind of, a lot of people on our there's a lot of people kind of against the long COVID narrative. And I, I you know, I, I kind of disagree. You know, I do think it is overblown and it is used to justify a lot of draconian measure, you know, like keep the kids in masks because they might get long COVID and stuff like this. But, yeah. but I do, I don't know. I do feel it is kind of a real thing. I experienced it. And I know a lot of people that did before. This does seem like a novel thing. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, all the better to have all the tools we can fight it with, uh, tools that actually work as the, the the important thing there um but yeah glad you guys are better and uh yeah, yeah anything I mean, else? Just, just to clarify one thing i would not call it well we had long COVID. we okay. you know we were sick for with the virus probably for 10 days and then getting take 10 days to get better okay yeah, i would That's call good. long COVID something that goes on for more than two months yeah months. yeah yeah i mean people are very um you know, and slipshod with their definitions. And that's yeah. one of the reasons why people are so easily duped. Uh-huh. You know, when, when people talk about comorbid- comorbidities, mm-hmm. for example, like a comorbidity, medically speaking, is like, you know, a major illness that you're yeah. visiting the hospital for and so forth. You know, if you're getting treated for diabetes or treated for yeah. obesity or treated for, you know, heart disease or some lung condition, uh-huh. uh, that is a comorbidity, right? 
So, but when people have all this fear about, oh, I'm a bit overweight, therefore I have a comorbidity, therefore I'm going to die from COVID, yeah. they don't really have the kind of comorbidity that, that a medical doctor is really talking about. When they I think see. about people with these major, you know, oh, you should be frightened if you have comorbidities. A lot of what's yeah. going on here is a definitional disjunction between yeah. What you think of obesity and what they're thinking of in obesity, and they're not being very clear in their definitions for the most part. Yeah, we're, you know, we're being fooled a lot by by the you know careless speech, really that goes on on the media and on Twitter and so forth. You know, yeah, so worth bearing that in mind, I would say. And it's like many other things in in the scientific realm where they, whoever they are, seem to be allowed endless mistakes, rhetorical and otherwise. And de you know definitional, but you know if if one doctor makes one little slip up on the Joe Rogan podcast and the rest of it's really good, you know he gets dragged through the mud for it. You know it's kind yeah. of a weird weird phenomenon that I think we've all witnessed. You know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. Did you listen to those by the way? I just wanted to get a baseline. Did you listen to the Peter McCullough or Robert Malone or Malone one? I listened to the whole thing while I was sick because I was yeah. you know about all I was good for was watching videos. <clears throat> yeah. And that one seemed that a lot of people that. with what? what Malone said. You know, there was nothing he said that I know not to be true. Yeah, but obviously there's things I don't know about him. How involved he was in inventing mm -hmm. RNA vaccines and so forth. There's a lot of background that I don't know, but I don't think he yeah. said anything that was clearly wrong. You know, yeah. like, like you say, Tony Fauci and many other media uh, medics. Have said a ton of things that are indefensible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not just wrong, but indefensible. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. Everyone listened to that. There's so many people that I know that never listened to Rogan or even podcasts that told mm -hmm. me they listened to that Malone thing. And mm -hmm. yeah, he's. I liked it better than the Peter McCullough one. Um, I don't know. He's just a really calm and measured dude. You could tell he's got his head screwed on straight, you know. And he's um, as far. It's funny that everyone focuses on the invention of the mRNA thing. And I dug into that a little bit. I actually followed uh, this this guy Alexandros on Twitter, who's pretty. He's like a he's like a computer science guy, but he's super obsessed with getting to the bottom of narratives and such. And he has a really long thread that basically. And I trust him, and he basically confirms that more or less he was a huge played a huge role in the the development of the mRNA, the early mRNA vaccine technology. So for what that's worth, um, mm -hmm. but even if he wasn't, even if for some weird reason he was making it up, like do the points he makes about the current COVID narrative stand or not? And that's the thing, all the critics, all the people trying to censor the platform or whatever, they, they don't really seem to have any specific qualms with the claims he makes. You know, they, there's not like a mm -hmm. list of, I'd, I respect it more, even if they were wrong and they just said, here's my list of why I think he's wrong. Uh, but that never happens. It's always just some nebulous kind of finger pointing or definitional kind of thing. You know, it's mm -hmm. yeah, it's yeah, never really that too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, when people don't have substantive points, we notice this points made against us. You know, there are yeah. there are a lot of people who make these statements saying that we're wrong, but they don't uh, ultimately have substantive. Points. Yeah, they're either off point completely, or we don't actually uh, hold those positions. Yeah. So this is really common. Yeah. And and so people think that you've been rebutted or refuted or whatever. Yeah. And and really that's not true. And but but people speak with so much certainty 
but yeah. you, you're wrong. That, mm -hmm. that uh, people who don't know one thing from another uh, are tempted to believe what what these uh, you know attackers uh, say, and and also, but ultimately, you know, these attackers are, are often relying on your ignorance and your mm -hmm. um, belief that because they say something so forcefully and strongly and and decisively that surely they would not be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, how do you feel these days about the, well, let's just touch on the lab leak for a little bit. And you were, you were really, you guys were really early on this and you were with that kind of kernel of early scientists talking about this, you know, Alina Chan and et cetera. And now it's, you know, now John, well, this is a while ago, even now, but John Stewart is talking about it on The Tonight Show, you know, and it's, it's kind of like a not, not taboo anymore. Uh, how do you feel about, do you feel, what's the feeling? Do you feel vindicated at all? I know that's kind of a weird word to use. Do you feel, <laughs> you know, do you, does, has anyone come around Is you know, what, what's, what's the, how are you processing this in this new era that we're in where it's kind of almost where anyone that's serious kind of accepts that this is what happened? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we still hold a little bit of scientific doubt that it really came from a lab. You know, like it's very, you know, science doesn't offer proof, mm -hmm. and and in this case, it doesn't, uh, in our view. And so, so there is that. You know, so we don't feel vindicated in having proved a lab leak because we don't even know. You know, our particular yeah. version of the lab leak is is not proven nor is you know a kind of genetic engineering version of the lab leak or a researcher yeah. catching it when they went to a cave version we don't know which of those ones is the was the true lab leaks you yeah. know if you like so but we do feel vindicated in the sense of figuring that this was something worth looking into yeah as you know uh, absolutely all kinds of interesting pieces of information have come out uh, as a consequence of people being concerned about the lab leak, you know, the deceitful behavior of Fauci and Collins and uh, yeah. and Peter Daszak and yeah. uh, all these uh, agencies, you know, the, the way they behave has really been exposed by the lab leak investigations, you know, the whistleblowers. And yeah, actually how they operate. And, you know, we have a better picture of how they operate. Uh, yeah. Pet funders and favorite individuals you know which is unethical often and and they've but they've attempted to hide that you know so yeah. like you've got this whole cover-up thing that that is going on in which uh you know first of all they all admitted you know wanted to argue nothing was happening and then when it becomes absolutely obvious that they were funding gain-of-function research in wuhan then then the question becomes you know they're like they're all trying to hand off the blame to each other and now francis collins has left his position yeah it's hard to imagine there was any other reason than that there's going to be a lot of fallout from yeah. the, uh from this scenario and he's not happy with that and so so it's super interesting that he would you know he's just given a valedictory interview to science magazine <laughs> i don't know whether you saw that Saying no. he didn't know, he he won't he'll miss everything except the nasty politics, <laughs> okay. and, and it's kind of interesting because uh, you know emails only just came out, yeah. basically in which he was um, 
commissioning a, uh, a hit piece yeah on uh on the people behind the great barrington declaration yeah 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 i i saw this <laughs> and like that's basically instigating the nasty politics yeah he like he doesn't like he doesn't like when he's caught doing it or when it happens to him yeah well, that's kind of what yeah yeah well that's the people you know the take-home message is that the people who cause all these nasty things to happen are the people who get to complain about how terrible yeah. it is in the media yeah yeah that's fascinating do you know who uh lex friedman is the the, the scientist and he runs a really popular podcast, generally science focused, you know, AI and computer science and but everything, astronomy, biology, and all sorts of other topics. And he's interesting. He's friends with Rogan. They've been on each other's shows. And he he's an interesting guy because he's pretty I consider him pretty like pretty blue pilled on the whole, you know, he's very he's like an MIT guy. He's pretty you know, he's bought the narrative, he's got the Moderna shots and everything. He calls mm -hmm. them a marvel of science, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And but he'll also interview like Jay Bhattacharya from the Great Barrington Declaration or Brett Weinstein or you know, all these dissenting voices as well. But he's yeah. recently he's also interviewed um actually before those guys, he's he interviewed uh Francis Collins and mm -hmm. uh who was the other oh the Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer on his mm -hmm. show. Yeah. And of course, as you can, you know, he's kind of built up this audience. I, I'm, I'm getting to a point here, I guess, but he's built up this audience of kind of people dissenting from the mainstream scientific opinion. And then he has these guys on this, you know, Francis Collins and Albert Borla and, you know, just horrendous interviews, just clearly, uh, you know, I mean, the Albert Borla, it's just ridiculous how, how hearing this guy talk about, about vaccine side effects or, you know, or, or is Pfizer liable for this or that kind of stuff. So is and your interview offering pushback? He's that's the thing. He gets he gets a lot of heat for not offering enough pushback for these guys, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and especially the Francis Collins one. It seems because people really roasted him for that. And I and then he had Jay Bhattacharya on, where they go over those emails that Francis Collins sent. Mm -hmm. And Lex's whole thing was like, "This saddens me." You know, I think he's a, and they just kept saying, "It's like I think he's a great guy. I think he's just such a stand up guy." You know, he's. He's he's a legend in his field, and I see you know and I, I see you shaking your head, and and then I, and then I we see him do this, and they're kind of they're not defending these actions, but they're they're being like this is a, a mistake in the midst of a great career and all this stuff, and I'm sitting here thinking I'm like maybe he's a cult leader, and you guys just don't realize it, you know. Uh, it's, do you uh, have any thoughts on that? You know the whole like sure. I, don't know. I mean, there's a, there's a cult of genetics. Yeah, go, that's I, your that's a huge part of your career and your your work yeah. is exposing the cult of genetics. Do you want to get into that a little bit? Yeah, we can. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we wrote a, a um, an article one time about, and I used Francis Collins's book uh, about his own medical medical um, conditions as the lead hmm. for the article. It was super interesting because um, he was talking about how wonderful it's going to be when we have personal prediction of diseases based yeah. on genetic predispositions. Yeah. And, and he talks about his own predisposition, predisposition to uh, diabetes, I think it was. I see. And he, <laughs> according to the, the genetic uh, predispositions that he yeah. allegedly has, um, he has like a fractionally increased chance of having diabetes, like increased by something like three or four percent. 
right? And he was yeah. talking about that as sort of standout finding, right? Like if you knew yeah. that you had a three or four percent increased chance of having one of these diseases, would you yeah. change your life? <laughs> I, I doubt it. And and it's not useful information. And yet that's yeah. a standout piece of evidence. And even that is questionable interpretation of the data, frankly. Yeah, of course, of and, course. <laughs> yeah. So you've got this like, you know, situation where the National Institutes of Health is basically spending an enormous proportion of its budget on searching and not finding genetic <laughs> predispositions yeah. that uh, basically have no value at the end of the day. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, 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 like, you know, this institution is supposed to be curing disease and, and uh, finding treatments and <laughs> offering ways for prevention and so forth, and yet it's doing very little of that. It's spending all its money on basically convincing people that, it doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't matter what you smoke. It doesn't yeah. matter what you, you know, whether you exercise, whether you're overweight or whatever. You can eat all the junk food you want as long as you have the right genetic predispositions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so people are getting completely the wrong message yeah. about their lifestyles and the yeah. necessity of eating well and exercising well and sleeping well and so forth. And, 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 but the whole medical profession and the whole scientific community are so bought into this, because and largely thanks to Francis Collins, right? Yeah, he did at the epicenter of all this, including a few other people like Eric Lander. Mm. They have basically sat at the middle of this whole orchestration, and you know you start to see in parts of the pandemic coverage that's come out exactly how they go about their business of making science give the results that they want yeah. to make. That, that, I'm glad you brought this up because I, everyone was kind of, uh, you know, talking about Francis Collins as he's a legend, he did the Human Genome Project. And in my head, I'm thinking, wasn't that largely a flop in terms of results in terms of getting disease? But no one ever addresses that. It's still this mythical no. No. thing that we did. Yeah. And I, I, I love, I'm a, I love listening to uh, Rupert Sheldrake interviews, you know, mm. and I, I don't agree with oh, him on everything, yeah. but I, but I, I do like him, and I, I think he's pretty witty, and um, I like his his mind scientifically, you know, and mm. he talks a lot about you know Craig Venter doing his private genome versus the publicly funded Francis Collins ones, but Craig Venter's a lot more honest, and he's like he's basically saying he's like I'm the guy that made a million dollars the hard way by working my way down from a billion, you know, because he threw <laughs> all his money at the he's thinking he's going to get all so he's He's pretty, you know, he's honest about it. He doesn't have some some religion to or some cult to kind of protect. No, he, he has said some some things that I yeah. would agree with about the human genome, the status of the human genome, or what we think we've yeah. learned. Yeah. Whereas I've never seen Francis Collins say anything that I felt that I could agree with. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting, guys. I know you haven't. I'm talking about a guy that you haven't listened to yet, so I don't want you to have to comment on that but this lex friedman guy you know he's really he's really blown up in popularity and i do like him he's yeah. he's he's a good egg you know you could tell he's he's not like a he's not compromised he's he's you know he had jay bodhicharya on to talk about the harms of lockdowns and all this stuff that was a good yeah. interview and um but it's just interesting to see a guy like that still kind of fall for this stuff and uh yeah so i don't know yeah so yeah i'm glad we cleared that up about francis collins that was that was really interesting i want to get into the 
it's more COVID specific stuff, the actual mm. virus. Mm. First of all, does the COVID virus exist or does it not? It does exist. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I am 100% certain of that. <laughs> okay, can we get into it? We don't have to spend too much time on this, but I, I have. Like I don't really argue online anymore, but I have got I've gotten into it a little bit with some of these people who are it's a it's hard because they're generally on our side in terms of like lockdowns and science largely being a scam these days and everything like that. But they're just adamant that the virus doesn't exist. It's never been isolated. The only way it's been proven to be isolated is through, you know, all these computer modeling and genetic code kind of stuff that doesn't really exist. And they evoke Koch's postulates for is four postulates for for why COVID doesn't exist. Um, so yeah, do you want to get into this a little? Then again, we don't have to spend too yeah, much time sure. on this, but yeah. Sure. Uh-huh. Well, I and I also I also know you and you and Serena are, are another one of our guests who I want to have you up on both together. You you set up a little maybe debate. Is that right between a proponent of this theory that it doesn't exist and yeah, we're I'm going to be hopefully be on on uh, there's a guy called Alex Zek going to be on his podcast with Andrew Kaufman and Serena Fab. So we're all going to be debating uh, the the existence of the virus on that. And, uh, you know, there is, I want to be sympathetic, right? Uh, There is merit to some of these arguments Mm -hmm. in the sense that, um, you know, the traditional methods of, uh, determining the existence of a pathogen no longer really are used. And so so there is, what, what people have done is, is kind of gone into a series of shorthand experiments uh, in which, um, you know, for example, they will isolate the virus from uh, Vero E6 cells, like monkey cells, basically, okay. uh, having taken it from a person and then some of Koch's postulates will be overlooked or yeah. there will be no infectious clone ever produced. Okay. Right? So there are uh, things to critique about those methods. Okay. And the, the problem with critiquing those methods is that ultimately science doesn't rest on single experiments. The scientific results and scientific conclusions don't ultimately rest on single experiments. Yeah. So, so what is happening is, you know, that people are taking, uh, they're sequencing and they are basically relying on a virus taken from monkey cells, which they, you know, they think ultimately came from an infected person who had COVID-19. But um, they have... Uh, so, so you basically they will analyze that virus and sequence that virus, but Cox postulates, for example, ask you to go back to the person and show that this virus is infectious in that person and gives the symptoms, the things that you've isolated from the monkey cells, yeah, be able to give the symptoms of COVID nineteen. Yeah, and the problem with Cox postulates in the case of people is that it's not a very ethical experiment to do. Uh-huh. Yeah, you don't want to to endanger that. So yeah. sometimes Cox postulates get bypassed, and that yeah. is a scientific problem. Another way that they get bypassed is people will isolate a virus, but it will never be shown to be an infectious clone. So, okay. for example, RATG13, the nearest wild ancestor of, or what was anyway, the nearest wild ancestor of 
um, uh, and many of the bat viruses, for example, that are closely related to uh, SARS-2. Yeah. Nobody was ever able to isolate an infectious clone of those. So what that means is if you don't have an infectious clone, that means that the virus that you have sequenced and identified and, and are keeping in your lab is basically a piece of DNA. Yeah. It's not a viable virus at the end of the day. Okay. Right? So in that sense, it's not a virus and it's not a real thing because if you tried to put it back into the bat or tried to put it into a bat cell, nothing would happen. Okay. It doesn't, it's not infectious. It doesn't do anything. And yeah. virologists, because of all this sequencing technology and all this like trawling around oceans looking for random viruses in seawater and stuff, yeah. and wanting to publish that data and put it into databases and so forth, they've overlooked the traditional methods of isolating a virus, which was that if you don't have an infectious clone that demonstrates Cox postulates, then you don't have a virus. Right, you have nothing yeah. publishable. Okay, right? that was the tradition from you know twenty years ago, but because of all this sequencing and different kinds of information that's now available about viruses, and the problematic nature of demonstrating Cox postulates, like you know, in a, if you're trawling around an ocean collecting giant viruses, and you've only got part of the virus, where you've only got you don't even know what it infected in the first place generating Cox postulates or demonstrating Cox postulates is really hard. Yeah. It may be impossible. So virologists have gotten into the habit of bypassing those experiments. But yeah. in the case of COVID-19, it seems to me rather obvious that the virus exists because Cox postulates were already being demonstrated for those patients by the fact of them getting sick and the fact of them having, you know, UBL to contact trace how they got sick and so on. And yeah. So on. In many ways, Cox postulates have just been demonstrated, but in a different way. Yeah. And, uh, so I don't have a problem with the scientific demonstrations that people consider that they've gone through, where you basically, you, you collect a swab from their lungs, you put that into a monkey cell, then you sequence that, then you clone it and make it basically a DNA version of it. And then you use that to reinfect a monkey, a monkey cell, or a Syrian hamster, or a mouse, or a, or an experimental animal. In my opinion, you've basically done your due diligence with that virus. You know, you've seen you've seen SARS-like particles in those cells. If you've done those basic experiments, you have demonstrated the existence of that virus. And the mistake that people are making when they when they critique these experiments is you have to understand that all science is based on correlation, right? We only know things through correlation. And you you never can, it's exactly like, you know, if I, uh, if I was to punch you, right, <laughs> a bit, right? If I was to do that, I'll poke you, right? And, and you fell over. We don't, I, we can't actually ever know that you fell over because I punched you, right? All yeah. we know is that I punched you and you fell over, right? And yeah. We've seen hundreds of people be punched and fallen over beforehand, but basically it's a correlation. Yeah. We're talking about here. And, and it's exactly the same as if you ask me, why did I punch you? 
and you would have to make a guess about you know that I didn't like you or, yeah. or maybe that I was trying to save you from being hit by a train or something you know I just trying yeah. to get out of the way or whatever like <laughs> you have to make a guess as to what someone's reason is for doing something and we can never do that if they don't tell you you can't yeah. know what the what the reason the chain of reasoning that they're going through and the yeah. same thing with causation causation can never be demonstrated directly and yeah. that was something that that Hobbes said the philosopher mm. Yeah, he basically said you can't demonstrate causation, but you can demonstrate correlation. But once you've cor shown correlation enough times and under enough different conditions and so on and so forth, you have, you know, you've satisfied most people for most purposes that that this these things are not just correlations; they're actually causations. Yeah. So, but what that means in practice is that, you know, people use all kinds of different scientific experiments to demonstrate the existence of viruses, but none of them does anything more than demonstrate correlation. So if you isolate one of those experiments and you say, uh, you can easily show that this experiment is flawed. You know, there could have been some space person who came down and put the virus into the monkey cells, or it could be that, that you just happen to look at under the microscope some particles that happen to look like a coronavirus, but really they weren't. There was just some abnormality in those cells or whatever. Yeah. We can go on and we can go on and we can make those kinds of arguments forever. And you're not going to convince someone who doesn't want to be convinced and vice versa. You're not going to unconvince anybody who doesn't want to be convinced. Basically, yeah. All scientific experiments have flaws in them. Yeah. You cannot demonstrate causation inside a scientific experiment. I see. It cannot be done, right? So so what that means is any one scientific experiment can be critiqued. But once yeah. you've done 10 different scientific experiments, all based yeah. on different assumptions and done in different ways and so on and so forth, once you've done those 10 scientific experiments, you'd have to be slightly foolish to deny the, the conclusions if they're consistent. That's right. I saw this great paper one time, which is by a guy called Hillman. And what he did was he, he took one of his typical experiments he was doing. So he was just a cell biologist, and he, he, he wanted to look at how many assumptions he was using in his, one of his yeah. typical experiments. Yeah. And he, he basically was, you know, so he took this experiment of the, kind, of the kind of experiment that biochemists do all the time, which is basically to see whether two proteins associate together in the presence of a third molecule. In this case, it was NADP, which is like an energy molecule. Yeah. So the question was, you know, in these rat cells, do, do these two proteins come together when I add NADP? And the way that, only way that he could demonstrate this was by basically grinding up the cells and measuring the association between the two proteins and, uh, and doing this all in a test tube, right? Which is not very physiological. There's all kinds of assumptions involved in that. Yeah. For example, you know, would this same interaction have pertained in a real living cell, right? Yeah. And so he basically made a list of assumptions that were involved in doing this experiment. And in the case of his test tube association between two proteins, he concluded there were 27 assumptions in that wow. experiment. And but, but the, 
so so he was basically saying you know there's there's all these 27 crit criticisms that a person could make of that experiment but what so what makes a scientific uh, paper a good scientific paper is that for example you will do that experiment in a test tube and those assumptions can you you have to accept that those assumptions are weaknesses of your yeah. experiment but then yeah. you do the same experiment in vivo, right? You find some way of demonstrating that this same phenomenon is true inside a living cell. Okay. You find a different way, a completely different way of, you know, maybe a genetic way or whatever it is of showing that these two proteins interact when there's NADP present. Mm. Right? So a good scientific experiment will have a genetic, will basically show a genetic correlation and an in vivo correlation and a test tube correlation. And by the time you've seen all those experiments and they all give the same result, you say, okay, I'm gonna buy this, right? Yeah. This is really going on in a real cell in real time and is physiologically relevant and so on and so forth. But the point is, if you took any, you know, if you have, the paper only had one of these demonstrations, the genetic one or the in vivo one or the test tube one, you'd say, this is not convincing to me. Yeah. Right, and this is what these these viruses don't exist. People are doing. They're taking one version of how to isolate a virus, and they're saying, "Well, this has flaws." And yeah. my answer is, "Yes, it does have flaws." But but these questions have been demonstrated in many ways, and they all agree. They all give agreeable answers. You know, yeah. I, I got the virus from going out on New Year's Eve and mixed it with some other people and three days later i got sick right and i didn't have any other personal contacts for for a good few days before that and none afterwards and and so that gives me some confidence that i caught an infectious agent from these people but it doesn't constitute proof right nobody i know actually at these events actually ever claimed to have been sick that yeah. i was able to trace so so you know there's always questions but but the, the the correlation, the correlations, you know, they stack up basically at yep. the end of the day. And if they don't stack up, then you really have to ask questions. But you have to know how strong the correlations are and how how well they stack up and how, you know, wh whether these whether the researchers are really doing their experiments well and so forth. And I think these people who talk about how you, you know, the flaws in isolating the virus, they're not bench scientists. I think at the end of the day, so so they don't understand these nuances of science. And frankly, most scientists have never read Hobbes and don't understand that what yeah. they're demonstrating all the time is correlation. Scientists are notoriously badly educated in philosophy. Yeah. My, my experience, and so so that that's a weakness because they don't teach it to the students and so no, you know the general audience doesn't know the general public does not know many of the basic. Uh, principles of science. You know, an experiment is only as good as its controls. Yeah. You know, nobody ever taught me that as a as an undergraduate or a postgraduate. Mm -hmm. I saw it in somebody's email one time, and I thought, "Wow, that's a great saying." Yeah. But most people, you know, I only heard that by accident. But it, but it, it's absolutely true. And I like yeah. your into a sweatshirt, by the way. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so like these elements of the scientific process of what we know about science and, you know, what is the definition of science and what, you know, what distinguishes the scientific method 
from from other methods and and why do we call some people scientists why do we call some institutions places where science happens why do why why in arguments can somebody say your method or your conclusions or your thoughts are not scientific like on what basis does anybody ever say that nobody i i know seems to be able to answer those questions yeah yeah it's, it's there's a gap on either side and yeah i don't want to be too down on these guys either like you said because i i mean i believe some crazy stuff you know and so i'm when they say this virus doesn't exist i'm not immediately like no of course of course it does i'm like man d does it exist are these guys right you know i'm kind of <laughs> like what you know what are they getting at here and i but yeah i, I dug into it and it's just i didn't really like what i the, the evidence that was being shown to me and that a big one is that which i agree I agree with the premise, but they take it too far as the PCR test. They're like, all these PCR tests are false positives and it just detects blah, 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 the virus, you know, therefore COVID doesn't exist. And I'm like, wait, wait, I agree with you on the PCR part. You know, I, it, it's trash and we shouldn't use it. And it's like a lot of these cases probably aren't cases and, you know, and et cetera, but they kind of, they kind of take it, take it a little too far. And the other, the other thing was, are all the lab leak scientists, are they lying too, you know, or are they completely bought out to, or not bought out, but are they just completely confused by this too? Well, you know, all these evidence of, you know, fear and cleavage sites and all these different things, like, it, does that account for nothing if the virus doesn't exist? You know, it, it just seemed a little, you know, a little elementary to me to of a theory. Yeah. And I, it, I don't know for me, I'm not a scientist, but it didn't hold water. So, yeah. Well, if you if you don't think that the virus exists, then there was no lab leak. Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's, uh -huh. I think that's obvious, right? Yeah. And and you know, having researched the lab leak for two years, I, I yeah. am I'm you know, I to me there's no doubts that the virus itself exists. So I wanna I wanna talk about I, I wanna continue on this topic a little bit, uh in the in in a few minutes basically more broadly about terrain theory and we always hear about terrain theory you know is it the terrain or is it the you will the have pathogen? to explain it to me because i do yeah. not understand it yeah but before that i want to i just want to ask about these variants and i want to i want to dig into like as a because you're a virologist you have phd in plant virology right mm -hmm. so so <laughs> so these i just want to know the the actual virology of how much of this is a media thing you know in mm -hmm. terms of naming these variants and all these <clears> different <throat> things how much of it is real how much of it is because you know we had we had alpha and then delta mm -hmm. and now omicron so, who, who names these things what's the scientific definition of it and uh, what what you know what makes a variant a variant and can we all does everyone agree on that <clears throat> and also just from what I understand, just the scale of evolution of any virus, but let's say the COVID virus in a sick person's nose or throat or whatever is so, it's so vast, just, you know, just billions of replications all the time and all this stuff, just in one individual, let alone, you know, billions of people or millions of hundreds mm -hmm. of millions of people. So it is what, you know, what use is there naming these variants discreetly as like a, as its own pillar, as its own thing? You, mm. get, you, you sense what I'm getting at? You know, is mm. it, 
I'm just I just want to know because I I don't know you know and I, I want to know yeah. what, what there's, your there's a lot are. of questions you probably want to stop at this point because there's a yeah. lot of questions yeah. <laughs> there. yeah. and, and if I forget to answer when any one of them just uh let me know because I wasn't writing them down. No, that's okay. I, yeah, yeah. But, but you get the general the thrust of what question, I'm the first yeah. question is the World Health Organization names these variants. Okay. Right? It's in right. there, it's in their court. And they have different definitions of variants. Like, for example, they have variants of concern, variants under monitoring, I think it's called. Okay. And, and they have, so basically, you know, a virus, a, a virus variant, and we'll get into exactly what that means in a second, appears, yeah. and they monitor it. You know, is it spreading more and more quickly? Is it spreading geographically? Or is it disappearing? Because some of them appear for a yeah. few weeks, you know, and all of a sudden there's a splurge of this virus and then all of a sudden it's gone. Mm. And and other ones, you know, there's a there's an outbreak and it spreads and spreads and spreads and all of a sudden it's over the whole world, you know, like Omicron yeah. or Delta within a few months. And and within a few months after that, even even less time in the case of Omicron, it's it's basically driven all the other ones into oblivion. Yeah, because right. it's so transmissible. So, right? Yeah, so it's the who that that is basically naming and monitoring these things. Okay. The reason there's a difference between a virus mutant and a virus variant, right? And a variant is basically a virus with a whole collection of mutations in it that distinguish it from all the other viruses out there. Okay. Right. So, so you know, the very first new new types of viruses that followed the beginning of the pandemic were actually mutants. There was a D614G mutant, for example, that basically drove the others out of, out of existence. And that okay. seems to have had a more uh, better affinity for the spike protein, for example. But that was just a single mutation, a single change in the spike protein that uh, that spread all over the world and was slightly more successful than other ones. Yeah. So, but a variant that in the case of Omicron, Omicron has sixty or seventy different mutational sites, different sites at which it's mutated, compared okay. with any other virus that's out there. And a few of those mutations it shares with Delta or with Alpha or some of the other variants. But basically, they all arose, all the mutations in Omicron arose independently, and many of them are not shared with any other virus or any other mutant or, or anything anywhere, except for, for example, you know, if I was to, if you had COVID and I was to sequence all the viruses in your nose, you probably would find every single mutate possible conceivable mutation will be present and among the billions of viruses wow. that were in your nose, right? But what, what's interesting about the viruses in your nose is that when you pass them on to someone else, mm -hmm. right? Imagine you have COVID and then you give it to someone else. When you give it to someone else, they probably will catch five or 10 viruses or maybe 20 viruses from the person they, who, who gave it to them. Okay. And so essentially all the genetic diversity of viruses in your nose does not go into that next person. It's ra is random. 99.999% of it is lost. Yeah. Right? So the 10 mutants, 
that you have in your nose will be basically ten, ten of those those viruses, even and even the viruses that they get, the ten that you give them, may all be the same ten. I see. Right. So 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 essentially, the mutational rate of the virus in a general population is quite slow. Yeah. Not not because virus diversity isn't being generated, but because when every time it's passed on, there's such a big bottleneck that there is no, basically no evolution that's going on between if you gave it to me, the virus that I got might be one nucleotide different from the one that you gave to me, or it might not be. And so on average, about two mutations a month. If you look at, there's a nice website called Next Strain, and it shows, for example, the number of mutations you can use it to show the number of mutations that are accumulated by all the new viruses that exist today. Yeah. And on average, they acquire about, compare with the Wuhan 1 strain that outbroke in China in, in January 2000 or December, whenever you want to say that you think it broke out, there's been about two mutations per month on average. Okay. And so, so, so these, but the variants, the variants have actually evolved in many ways faster than the rest of the pandemic, right? So one of the interesting things about alpha and beta and uh, Omicron is that they represent jumps, kind of quantum leap jumps, if you like. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why they're, you know, they're, they're variants because they have all these mutations that, yeah. that other viruses don't seem to have. Yeah. And including mutations, as I said, that other viruses do have. So they've got all this whole hodgepodge of mutations and they behave very differently. Yeah. You know, the Omicron has, it doesn't seem to form syn situ, which is like cell fusion events. It's mostly in your throat and not yeah. in your lungs. It, it, the virus infection develops more quickly. The, yeah. the transmission is more quickly. You become better more quickly. You're less likely to go to the hospital. You are, um, uh, and it's and it's more infectious, you know, in different ways, and uh, and so it has all these different properties, gives different symptoms, and so so it is radically different from the ones that it evolved from or the ones that it coexists with. So, and what what's interesting to us, the thing that's super interesting to us about these variants is yeah. that. You know, in, a, in the most likely explanation is that they arose in individual hospitalized patients. Did we talk about this last time I came on this show? I don't think so. Not, not yeah, I don't, no. I don't recognize okay. Yeah, go ahead. So, that, so there are some theories. There's at least three or four different theories about where they come from. Because what's interesting, I don't know if I can show on, we probably can't share screens or anything, but. But you I actually, have, you actually could. could. You could send me a link or, or something, um, or I could, yeah. Too, too, I think it would be too slow for me to get out. Okay, uh, yeah. The interesting question about all these variants is that, you know, you might expect Omicron to derive from a virus that was extant at the moment. Okay. Like the viruses that are all around us that are not Omicron are highly adapted viruses. They're the best of the best of the best that survived or mutated and developed during the course of the whole pandemic. Yeah. So, you know, what every virologist basically expected is that every new kind of virus that arose would arise from one of these best of the best of the best. 
Yeah. But it turns out that Omicron, and this is also true for Alpha, for Beta, for Gamma, for e, uh, Iota, for a whole bunch of different, um, uh, almost everyone except Delta of the new variants that the World Health Organization has been monitoring, they are all derived from viruses that only existed many months or years ago. Wow. Like at the beginning yeah. of the pandemic. So what does that imply? Well, so, that's really interesting, right? Yeah. Because it's, you know, the evolutionary equivalent is basically if you, if a Tyrannosaurus Rex, right, appeared in the middle of the Amazonian <laughs> jungle. Yeah. And like, you know, it started to like spread out of the jungle and was eating all the rats and the mice and the, the deer yeah. and the whatevers. And, and they spread all over the world. Uh -huh. Right. That's basically the equivalent of what these variants are, right? This is wow. basically a, a predator that hasn't been seen for 200 million years. Wow. All of a sudden it appears, and, and you imagine there must have been some isolated population of that predator, you know, like the movie. Yeah. What it's called, the, the, the plateau where they went exploring and found all these dinosaurs or whatever. Yeah. Like such a place must, you know, in order for that to happen, such a place must have existed where all these dinosaurs were hanging out, but we didn't know it. And for some reason, they didn't leave the jungle. For some reason, they didn't, where they weren't yeah. known to us. And 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 this is exactly what's going on with these variants, right? They basically are the, their nearest ancestors haven't existed and, and since, for example, in the case of Omicron, since uh, May 2020. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's like nearly two years ago was the last time anybody saw anything that re is recognized to be like Omicron. This is so I've never I've followed this stuff pretty closely, and I've, it doesn't seem like anyone's really talking no, about this. No, they're not talking about it, and I, I find the reasons why are interesting, maybe too. Does this but, relate to just to interject and I mean, maybe I hope this continues with what you're you're saying. Does this relate to? Kind of the, for lack of the better term, the quote unquote conspiracy theories around that Omicron might potentially be another lab leak itself, or that it might be something, or or is that what do you? Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, the the problem, you know, the 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 question for those the people who want to argue that Omicron came from a lab, yeah, is that, um, or what? How do you explain all the other variants? Yeah, right. If all the variants are arising in that same way, right? Like what lab leaked alpha? What lab leaked beta? <laughs> what lab leaked gamma? What lab leaked iota? What lab yeah. leaked iota? You know, like you have to go through them all and say, well, it was this lab or, what, yeah. or you know, like you've got to get, make a guess, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and the most likely explanation is that there is a similar, a similar explanation for all of that, right? So yeah. I think it doesn't, it doesn't make a lab leak very likely, okay. right? But, but people have not drawn many correlations between these variants, right? And I think yeah. that's interesting, not in the media. If you see scientists talking about similarities between the variants, there's very little discussion of the fact that they've arisen in this similar way. Right, yeah. they're all throwbacks from way early in the 
pandemic. And by the way, this makes producing vaccines quite a challenge. Yeah. Right? Because because basically you it's gonna be randomly if new variants that come in, into that appear are all based on throwbacks and are nearly or you know their nearest ancestors is basically Wuhan one. Yeah. Right? Then how are you going to generate new new vaccines? Right? If Omicron can appear on the 25th of November and be all over the world within two months. Yeah. Completely different from any virus that we've seen before. How are you going to generate a vaccine to that? Well, did you see that, was it the CDC or the WHO or the FDA, one of those organizations came out and said, we're no longer recommending monoclonal antibodies because it's ineffective against the genetic variant of Omicron. But of course, they never said anything about the vaccine and the spike the spike protein because from right they're a little different they are a little different from each other but cdc okay. i mean this was one of robert malone's gripes yeah right that that they basically stopped people from using monoclonal antibodies but yeah. you know the point is that some people still have delta and they need those yep. monoclonal antibodies and some of those monoclonal antibodies may still be somewhat effective against omicron yeah so well, my, my point is that they from cdc's point of view was uh was premature yeah well yeah and and it's also it only applied how come they didn't apply it to the vaccines that are two variants old with it with the when it's focused on a, a version of a spike protein that's yeah. what people that's what people are saying right yeah, Is yeah. That well they, I, they're, they're being weird about the monoclonal antibodies but they're putting full steam ahead and yeah, the whole vaccine yeah, yeah. I, I, for sure yeah. there's an inconsistency there yeah. You know, it's it's not, you know, using a monoclonal antibody is not the same as using as being vaccinated. Yeah. Because you know, the monoclonal antibody, we know what the antigen is to that. So we can say for sure that it works against Delta, but not Omicron or vice versa or whatever. Okay. Whereas a vaccine may still have some effectiveness. Okay. Right? Where even if it's outdated, All right. Right, it may still have some value. Yeah. Whereas an antibody, a monoclonal antibody that does not recognize Omicron has no value. I see. That okay. is utterly useless. Yeah. Right? So, so there, there is, you can't just say because one, the other. Okay. But yeah, there yeah. is a, there's certainly questions, right? Like we're still yeah. being vaccinated against viruses that don't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And it's, it's the spike protein itself genetically evolves in these variants right that's the way mm -hmm. it's been described so what so it's just a different version of the spike it's just a different yeah i mean it has yeah, a whole set of mutations and they, they appear to have been evolved in the presence of antibodies that yeah you know, so they're immune it's getting part you know they have many different properties these these virus variants but in part one of their properties is immune escape do so all immune yeah. escape to people who've been exposed to previous versions of the virus. Yeah. Right? I That's see. not immune escape from everything. Okay. Do all coronaviruses, not just COVID-19, do, do they all have spike proteins? Is, mm -hmm. is that what, that's what, it, that's what defines, a, that's the corona, right? Is the, all the spikes yeah. going out in every yeah. direction. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so what, what do you say, I'm getting a little off topic here, but I wanted to ask you that, you know, it, it was kind of well understood apparently before the COVID pandemic that it was very difficult, if not impossible to do, to manufacture vaccines 
for coronaviruses? Do you know anything about that? Uh, a little bit. I mean, okay. it's obvious that the spike is going to evolve. We know, we knew already that the spike evolves faster than any other part of the virus. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I is there a reason? Down. Do we know that? Is there a reason for that bi biochemically, or is that just kind of something that we know? Uh, that it may be the selection pressure, or it may okay. be the spike just is particularly flexible in okay. its arrangements, and probably a combination of both. Interesting. Okay. Cool. Yeah, sorry, I, I derailed us. I derailed us a little bit. We were talking about variants. That was a beautiful explanation, by the way. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you answered pretty much all my questions. I I do find it interesting that our bodies are variant factories, but the stopgap is the tr actual the thing that makes a virus a virus that it's able to transmit is actually a thing that limits its. It, I don't know. It's weird how, like you said, only five or ten or twenty or fifty variants from my nose will get into someone else's nose, mm -hmm. right? But there's billions inside me and it's just happening all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of st stochastic, but it's happening so quickly that there are patterns there, right? I don't know, it's just, it's interesting to me how, how this is all works. And the transmissibility of Omicron is extremely high, right? Mm -hmm. Malone was saying that, right? Seems Where like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is kind of, I remember people saying in the beginning of the pandemic that were saying that, this this virus is going to evolve. It's going to become extremely more transmissible and a lot less virulent and and deadly in in terms of hospitalizations because yeah, that's what I other mean, viruses have done. Like that. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You can make that prediction, but I don't think you could ever hang your hat on it. You know, yeah, the guesses. That's how I felt. I felt yeah, it was probably going to go that way, but we could. It, it was just we couldn't rely on that. But that seems to have been the case. So when you say Omicron outcompetes other variants what does that mean biologically what does that mean does that just that means that other variants don't don't get a foothold in the human population in terms of spread well in part what it means is that other variants basically have you know delta has been through a large proportion of the population already right? okay. in a sense they're their own worst enemies Okay. In that once Delta has been through the population and people are immune to that, right, or largely immune to that, yeah. then and that any other virus that comes along with a different shape spike is going to have an advantage. And I these see. variants appear to be trained up exactly on our immune response. Yeah. Right? They know. They, they have, you know, they've had... Uh, enough evolutionary selection pressure to evade the immunity that people have built up from from delta and from alpha and whatever other ones that they've they've gotten yeah and so that gives any new virus that arises uh, an advantage i see so prior immunity so it may not be it. so it may not just be the anything inherent about, yeah you know you have to really distinguish uh -huh. and, and many experiments don't do a great job of that. You have to really distinguish between what is the inherent infectiousness, what is the inherent immune uh, um, uh, immune response that's generated by this virus. Yeah. The fact that that the virus is basically experiencing a human population that's yeah. just had a coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. Great. Man, that was fantastic. Thank you. I just remembered. Um, 
I'd love to keep talking about the COVID, the COVID stuff, but I know a lot of people would be bummed if I didn't uh, just bring up for the last segment of this interview to talk about the poison papers. Um, oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, man, I wish we could. I, I know I don't have enough time to keep going forever. I wish I did. <laughs> yeah. And I know you're busy as well. Uh, they, but uh, yeah, I know a lot of people want to hear about the poison papers. And of course, we could link this back. This is just like everything else in science or mainstream science today kind of thing. Uh, could you give the cliff notes as to, well, first of all, they can go to poisonpapers.com dot poisonpapers.org. Yeah. And this is just one of those mind blowing and kind of very sad things, but, uh, would you give just the cliff notes version and then we could dig into the poison papers a little bit about what that is and when that happened and what's happened since. And yeah. 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 And your involvement. Yeah. Yeah, so so the the story really begins with this woman called Carol Van Strum, mm -hmm. who is ultimately instrumental in having Agent Orange taken off the market in the U.S. and around the world, because um, what she, what happened to her is that she lived in Oregon, and she was uh, she was sprayed, and her family was sprayed multiple times, and they learned to correlate, you know, their symptoms illnesses in their children, deaths in the animals, deaths in the river with yeah. the spraying events that were going on. And, they, and she found out that they were being sprayed with Agent Orange. And this was in the, what, early 70s. Okay. And so she started delving into what were the problems because she got no help from EPA, right? Okay. And so she ended up being involved in court cases uh, delving, getting information, for example, from a discovery of court cases. Sometimes she would be sent information by whistleblowers, but for like 20 years, she was, she was single-handedly investigating all the, uh, you know, every piece of information she could about EPA and their chemical testing and specifically related to Agent Orange but also DDT and dioxins, you know, these are all related stories because some are contaminants of that, like dioxins are contaminants of paper production. Dioxins, when you use chlorine, dioxins are contaminants of DDT uh, and Agent Orange and many other chemicals. Okay. And so, so she managed to persuade EPA, uh, you know, alongside a lot of other people, but she was really instrumental in uh in basically banning uh two four five t so we still use two four d in agriculture <laughs> yeah two four d two four d is a horrible compound <laughs> and we now have gmo crops that resist to corn that resist two four d specifically so that farmers can spray two four d on their yeah. crops which they and that's that's do. corn and soy right mainly like the, yeah so yeah. so this has a modern you know there's still a modern story going on here and basically, the e, she, she found out all these incredible things about the EPA. Yeah. So, for example, they, she, has, she obtained minutes of EPA meetings in which they basically accepted that, de, that dioxins were infinitely toxic. Right? <laughs> there was basically no safe level of yeah. dioxins. They talked about them being as poisonous as plutonium. Wow. And, and by which they mean like in, totally indestructible. Yeah. And uh, and there's no safe dose. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, because plutonium poisons you as a compound, and it poisons you because it's radioactive. Yeah. Like you cannot have too little plutonium in you. 
and 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 so so the, the EPA accepted this, but in court and in many other venues and in the scientific literature, they have never accepted any of that uh, any of that information. And yet, quite early on, they already understood perfectly well how toxic dioxin was, and that means that basically any release into the environment is endangering the human population, the animal population, the fish population, you name it. Okay. Right? And so, so regulators around the world have known all this information. And what is interesting to us, I mean, the poison papers, they have tremendous amounts of information about, this is hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. Yeah. They have um, information about, for example, how the chemical companies, how they discovered toxicity of dioxins and there for example of what they were spraying in in vietnam so yeah. they knew straight away like the chemical companies they know a lot about the chemicals they use yeah. so for example they they when they had um they had workers working in factories this is dow they had workers working in factories in the 1970s okay and they would have like basically one building would experience like you know all the workers would become sick right yeah. they would get acne they would get classic symptoms of dioxin poisoning but they didn't know what it was yeah and so then they wrote to german chemical companies and said what's going on here and they said oh yeah we know about this this is dioxin poisoning okay right and this is before uh you know they did cc epa but this is long before there was any regulation okay but so basically, the you know German chemical companies, U.S. chemical companies, and the EPA were all in the loop about these compounds, and they knew far more about them. For example, they would do things like they would put rats, lab rats, into yeah. the building where the workers were becoming sick, and the lab rats would get sick and would develop yeah. cancers and so on and so forth or die. Yeah. Right? And then they they also knew, for example, that they could clean out the cages and uh, put in new lab rats and not even take those cages into the building and the lab rats would still die who wow. just spend time in the cages right wow. so the chemical companies know a lot yeah. about their substances that they don't yeah. tell you about and they talk about oh it'll take years to test for this and it'll take forever to do this experiment and yeah. so on and so forth but they have their ways of figuring what's dangerous and what's not dangerous yeah uh, you know, really, really quickly. Yeah. And EPA, you know, one of the things about EPA is they don't use these methods, right? They're not accepted <laughs> uses of of um of animals. Yes. Yeah. So what is really interesting, apart from the complicity of the companies about the poison papers to us, because we what we our role in this is basically to get them from Carol and to scan them, right? And put them online so that researchers can look at them and we donated them to the uh, University of California, San Francisco, uh, Chemical Industry Documents Library. Okay. So uh, basically, that allowed that means that you know save for posterity, if you like. I mean, we we did put them on Document Cloud and yeah, and put them in various places. But there's a lot of material you can't just yeah. store it on your own website. And so, um, but what's interesting to us about all this story is how much evidence there is of the complicity of the regulators yeah right this is like regulators knowing that chemical tests being done on substances that 
are still used today were fraudulent. That's Great the thing, that's the main takeaway from at least for me. It was that mm -hmm. the whole all of chemical regulation in in the country is a scam, mm -hmm. and it all rests on fraudulent data. Right, oh, almost all of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, huge. You know, I mean, you we have absolute proof in the poison papers that they were fraudulent, that EPA knew that they were fraudulent, yeah. and EPA did nothing about it. And they had evidence that many other uh, testing companies and tested products were using fraudulent data. Yeah. So, for example, you know, they, they could tell, for example, the toxicologists could tell, for example, in the controls, if there's, if there are, if there's excess mortality in the controls, what does that tell you, right? If you normally, you get no cases of leukemia in yeah. your mice experiments, and the, the, the testing company comes to you with like 10 cases of leukemia in 200 mice and 10 cases of leukemia in, two, in 200 treated mice, right? What does that tell you about, uh, about the experiment that's been done? Yeah. What that tells you is probably the testing company contaminated the control group with the treatment compound. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. they got a specific disease that matches what's in the treatment. But the company then argues there's no difference between the treatment and the controls. Yeah. Right? Therefore, yeah. it's safe. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. And, and yeah. so, so <laughs> yeah. they, you know, well, they could, of hand, they of, could yeah. see this going on. Yeah. Right? But because the company is telling that, you know, it's not allowed to, to put substances in the control group and that's not part of the protocol and so on and so forth, what's EPA going to do about it, right? Yeah. They have to either call out the company as liars and, and cheats and, and frauds or yeah. they can do nothing. Yeah. And what's interesting is that, that in all this period was they move, EPA moved from a system where basically, you know, it used to be that Dow and um, uh, Diamond Shamrock and all the SO and, and Exxon, all these companies would test their own products and submit the data to the EPA. Yeah. Right? And people figured, well, this is not, there's a conflict of interest here somehow. <laughs> and and so so it started, it started out with a, they started to move to a system where independent companies would do the testing, right? So when I'm talking about fraudulent testing, I'm talking about by independent companies. And yeah. those independent companies didn't take them long to figure out which side their bread was buttered, <laughs> right? If they, came, if they submitted data to the EPA, which basically said, well, this compound given to us by, by Monsanto is causing cancer in rats. Yeah. And they knew they weren't going to get another contract to test Monsanto products, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, like, the conflict of interest is not, does not disappear because <laughs> you have a quote-unquote independent testing company, yeah. right? Yeah. It's just transmuted into a slightly different form. Yeah. And so, so what, part of what's in the poison papers is all this evidence of EPA letting companies off the hook who perform fraudulent tests. Yeah. So, you know, the classic example was the IBT scandal, right? So Industrial Biotest Labs was a company that was shown to be doing thousands and thousands of fraudulent tests. Yeah. Uh, because basically, you know, if you, 
if as a, you know you can the logic at work is quite simple yeah if you as a testing company know that the likelihood is that you, some company's new product that they're giving to you is going to cause uh, some kind of harm to the animals that you are giving it to. You know, you're testing yeah. it on mice. They're going to develop leukemias or they're going to develop some chronic illness or whatever in your long-term toxicology test. And you don't want to have to report that. Then then you have to, to basically... Uh, you're doing experiments basically to no purpose. If you're going to do it fraudulently because you don't want to find that result, you're doing yeah. experiments to no purpose. Yeah. And so so what they ended up doing is basically, you know, just just winging it, just doing these experiments <laughs> for like, like no one cared what the results were or what the treatment was like or how many animals died or what, what happened to the animals in the interim or how yeah. often they were monitored, like all this. Uh, you know, standard laboratory practice was basically abandoned yeah. by IBT. Yeah. You know, they had the sprinkler system was running 24 hours a day and stuff like that. It was what? just like a total disaster. <laughs> and yeah. and when, when somebody from the FDA, this guy called Adrian Gross, found out about this, he basically investigated them off his own bat, right? He didn't investigate them because, he, you know, he didn't go to his bus at FDA. Yeah. And say, look, we need to investigate these people. He just went himself, right? Because yeah. he knew that his bosses, you know, I'm gonna guess he knew his bosses didn't want to know about this. Yeah. Right? No one, yeah. no one in the system wants to know about this kind of stuff. <laughs> he went there on his own to IBT labs. So he flew to Chicago to go <laughs> and visit this lab. So he knocks on the door and he goes in. There's a secretary, and she's like, What are you doing here? We don't want you. You're from you're from the FDA. Yeah. And, and they called the police <laughs> on him. Right. Yeah. And but in the meantime, while they were busy calling the police, he wandered through the building. <laughs> right. He got, Look, and discovered the sprinkler system on all time and these dead rats everywhere and escaped from yeah. or whatever. And so so he made FDA investigate yeah. these people. They couldn't at that point, it was hard for them to not yeah. investigate yeah so, so they had to investigate but you know epa we, he worked at fda but it, he, ultimately epa was given the investigation to handle so okay. this was a company that was testing especially monsanto products and they had hired idt had hired actual monsanto people to do the testing of monsanto products right this is how independent they were they also were owned by another chemical company right yeah. So even though they're calls in uh, an independent lab, they're owned by a chemical company, right? Yeah. So, so there's no independence, no true independence here, right? It's not, yeah. So, 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 but the EPA doesn't want to investigate all this stuff because thousands of thousands of household products were yeah. basically implicated in this, yeah. in this scandal, right? Like <laughs> what, what's EPA gonna do when they say, like, you know, like all this stuff that you've been using in your, on your, you know, for your, uh, to kill rats or on your clothes or yeah. your food Engine, or whatever yeah. it is, like, it's all like, we have no idea whether it's safe or not. Yeah, yeah. And no clue. Yeah. And, and presumptively not safe because otherwise they would have done a sensible experiment and it would have shut. Jesus. Right? So, so the, so, so what EPA did was basically try 
to say to people, well, we don't know whether it's safe or not. We're doing an investigation. And this investigation took years, right? And yeah. it took long enough. And they said, meantime, we'll let the companies retest their products. Yeah. Right? And so they wouldn't tell anybody in the media or anywhere else what products were being investigated. <laughs> no one knew. Jesus. Right? Yeah. But like this would have been useful information for homeowners. Yeah. Right? Yeah. To know what, what was and in doubt. Right? Yeah. The safety of what was in doubt. Yeah. So, so anyway, they wouldn't tell anyone. They tried so hard to keep this information out of the public domain. And eventually yeah. it was released, but not until they'd redone the testing. Yeah. And when they redid the testing, they also, IBT got taken to court, right? So they let the companies do the testing, okay? Yeah. So the data that you now rely on often dates from this period. Yeah, wow. For, for the safety of many of these products. So they, they let the companies redo the testing, but they also, they, they, they had a court case, right? So three IBT people eventually went to prison Wow. And, um, but, you know, I mean, it should have been the whole company. It should have been dozens and dozens of people should really yeah. have gone to prison over this, right? Yeah. But uh, in order to. But they're kind of like the fall guys, though, right? Like the, in terms of even the IBT was yeah, a fall guy. Right, the... Sort of. But I mean, yeah. the, the CEO yeah. claimed that he had health problems and so he didn't go to prison. Wow, right. that's so, great. <laughs> he was a professor at, at uh, a university in Chicago. Okay, wow, interesting. Right? He never okay. went to prison. Wow. <laughs> Even though he was sentenced and, and whatnot, Jeez. he actually wow. never went. That's crazy. And, and, um, and he, but he lived another 20 years, right? His health problem <laughs> wasn't there, right? Yeah. And, and so, <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's not funny. And the, yeah. the, um, but you know what comes out of the poison papers, for example, is there's the minutes of a whole meeting that EPA had with basically the entire chemical industry, telling them what they were going to do about this IBT stuff. Yeah. And what they told them they were going to do is basically let IBT investigate itself. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like we're just going to wait for IBT to give us the information. Right about how their testing went wrong. Okay. Meanwhile, IDT bought like six shredders, right? <laughs> yeah. And they stuffed everything they could as quickly as they could into these shredders in the car, yeah. right? Uh -huh. But EPA claims that IDT was investigating itself. Like, if yeah. somebody commits a murder, right, we don't ask them to investigate themselves. Like, where did you buy the gun? Where did it, you know, like, that's not how we do things. Yeah. Right? If you are genuine in your investigation, you don't let the company that is whose whose officials are going to go to court uh, to go to jail investigate yeah. themselves because they basically exonerated themselves. Yeah. Right? And and EPA used all kinds of dubious scientific practices to basically rescue many of these experiments. Yeah. Right? So they were, they, you know, it was obvious that there were just wholesale inconsistencies between the experiments and the, uh, and and what was written down by the company, right? What was reported by the company. So, for example, there'll be discrepancies between what when the experiment dosing the animals with the compound started and when they actually bought the compound. 
to test the animals. <laughs> right? <laughs> like it was obvious. Yeah. That these were not genuine yeah. experiments conducted under rigorous conditions and so on. Yeah. But nobody at EPA did anything about that. Yeah. And so they accepted all this data that was basically obviously fraudulent. Yeah. And some of that data still is used today. And yeah. so so we have that, but but to me, the take-home message is what does that say about the EPA? Whose side is the EPA really on? Uh-huh. Right? And the system that's basically developed is plausible deniability. That's what these in, in, uh, uh, independent testing companies are really about. EPA yeah. can say, we didn't know that anything fraudulent was being done. The chemical company who makes the products can say that we don't know that anything fraudulent is done. But, yeah. but uh, you know, we can conclude from this kind of data that a lot of fraud goes on in these experiments. And yeah. that the incentive is to generate fraudulent experiments. Absolutely. So there's wow. a, the, you know, this is one of the things that comes out of the poison papers. Yeah, <clears throat> that's so fascinating. Just because I think myself and many other people in kind of intuitively know that there's just so many many toxic chemicals in our human environment that we use on a day-to-day basis, but we never really square how it got to this point, you know. And then the, the poison papers really kind of fill that that gap. And of course, this is all in the past. We've solved all these problems and it doesn't exist today, right? <laughs> Very regulatory yeah. wise. Well many of these many yeah. of these substances are still on the market. Like, yeah. Like, uh-huh. you know, I have an article that I've never fully finished yeah. but it's about permethrin so permethrin okay. is something that people use again put on their clothes against ticks they use it against okay. uh, clothes masks it's in car it's impregnated in carpet hmm. used in all these places and epa decided uh in 1986 yeah. that permethrin you know it's become one of the major pesticides basically but they yeah. decided that permethrin if they used it at the concentrations that they said were allowable would kill between five and 10% of the entire population. Oh my God. Right? Wow. So they concluded that. They concluded yeah. that. And then they said, but we're going to release it anyways. <laughs> that is wild. Yeah. 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 Absolute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, this episode sure isn't going to give people more faith in the scientific establishment, <laughs> I reckon. No, yeah. I mean, you have to understand that the treatment, yeah. you know, what's going on with the vaccine, what's going on with FDA, what's going on with uh, the the pandemic in general, is simply business as usual yeah. in, the, in Big Pharma and the FDA, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, this is, you know, these are companies that, you know, just uh, on the back off the back end of major prosecutions. Yeah, yeah. Right? Pfizer and Janssen. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, basically, um, Johnson and Johnson was selling uh, deodorant powders with asbestos in them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, like, that's the business model. Why do they get to manufacture the vaccine? Right. You know, why do they, and, yeah, and, it's like, yeah. Why? And then everybody can look at this company as if they're white as snow and say there's no reason whatsoever to suppose that any fraudulent research or or dodgy dealings will be involved in this vaccine. I mean, what kind of idiocy is that? Well, and that's the, the, not to get 
political, but I, I just noticed this in a lot of the, there's a lot of people that are, let's say, more left wing wing progressive leaning that are extremely almost rabidly pro vaccine, especially mm -hmm. pro COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. And their whole take is generally the companies that do this are bad. They, they treat their workers bad, blah, blah, blah. But the science that's done by those workers is sound. <clears throat> Therefore, we should trust the vaccine that's being promulgated by them. And uh, to me, that always just seemed incredibly naive. Like it's, that's clearly not what's happening here. It's not like a, it's not like a pure Marxist worker, you know, boss kind of thing here. There's clearly just tons of garbage being flown in through, you know, through this system. But I don't know how to get through to those people. But I, I, I reckon you feel. You, I mean, you can yeah. ask them about the new treatment for Alzheimer's. Oh yeah, that's, the FDA yeah. has just approved a treatment for Alzheimer's that basically doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And there's no evidence that it works. And mm -hmm. half the committee, scientific independent committee, resigned over that approval process. Yeah. And yeah, they, uh, they, yeah. they put it on the market. Yeah. And what's the deal with the? Um, they they did the vote on. They they recommended against boosters, like seventeen to one, right? Seventeen against boosters for children, mm. maybe one four. Oh, I did not see that. <clears throat> it was this was a couple months ago. Mm. Uh, we actually recorded a a podcast about it that night with a very knowledgeable guest on the mm. subject, and uh, um, I think it was the yeah the FDA, but now they're they're looking for emergency use <laughs> authorization for six month to five year old mm -hmm. uh aged children for the covid vaccine mm -hmm. so it's just crazy how you can get a 17 to 1 vote against it and yet it just still magically happens you know and it just mm -hmm. still keeps trucking mm -hmm. along you know it's mine it's mind mind-boggling yeah, yeah. yeah i mean there's way too many connections between the fda and the pharmaceutical industry basically yeah, yeah. you know their relationship to the the, the relationship between Big Pharma and the FDA is the same as the relationship between the EPA and the chemical industry. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you have to understand about the EPA. Yeah. Is, and this is exactly the same for the FDA. The EPA is basically run by, you know, the president appoints the head of the EPA. Yeah. And the head of the EPA is the only person who can basically sign off on any disapproval of any chemical interesting yeah. what? And the, yes my cat's in front of it uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't want anything and, to get messed and up. They, yeah. Um, yeah so they're the only person who can sign off yeah right and they're appointed by the president they can be fired at five minutes notice and wow the president the president does not want them banning monsanto oh. chemicals right because that's going to destroy the economy, yeah. Among other things, yeah. Right, and so so the head of the EPA knows perfectly well that they cannot go to Washington and basically plead the case to ban permethrin or or yeah. uh, DDT or two four D, right, without a huge fight. Yeah, and and they're going to have to have a lot of evidence, and they're going to have to have some kind of goodwill from the president. And some kind of backing from probably Congress, probably from other agencies and so on. You're like, you cannot go as head of a small agency and say, excuse me, I want to stop the economy. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. But everybody at EPA understands that. Yeah. Right? So, so the question is, if you're running the approval 
of a new class of pesticides like neonicotinoids or something yeah. like that right and you have evidence you know you're a assistant assistant semi-secretary of whatever it is and you have some evidence that neonicotinoids are going to kill all the insects or whatever yeah. it is you think you have like what are you going to do with that infant you're going to take that to your boss is your boss want to going to want to hear that so they can then go and talk to yeah. the big cheese at the epa like it just puts everybody on the spot yeah right the best thing that can ever happen at the epa is for that information to be buried yeah right because that preserves the institution as a as a place to work right There's otherwise more, yeah it becomes an open warfare yeah situation where like you know half the people think that this is some kind of disastrous chemical and everybody else just wants to give it a free ride there's a very yeah. complicated uh dialogue that goes on when they find this kind of evidence right and this is something also that i wrote an article the part of the permethrin article was basically about how does it come to be that a compound that clearly has chronic effects that has carcinogenic effects, that has all kinds of effects on the yeah. animals, that has been fraudulently tested. So this is like these, you know, when I say that it had, it looked like it would kill between uh, five and 10% of the population that was exposed to the maximum allowable dose. Yeah, This is even after the experiments have been conducted fraudulently. Yeah. Right, like, well, how bad would it have looked if they hadn't been conducted for yeah. yeah, right. Probably it would. It's much worse than that. But yeah. the the how is it that the agency takes that data from the testing company and concludes that that is an okay thing to put on the market? It's basically that everybody in the agency is in denial like no one wants to pass bad news up the feeding chain yeah right so you see this in the you know it's documented in the papers how everybody at each successive higher level of the food chain basically dumbs down you know like you know um, bodlerizes the information yeah right yeah. and they're all doing this so like you know, when you, if you're a middle manager there, you don't know that the original <laughs> data was much worse than what you're being shown. Yeah. They're showing you something that looks quite bad. And then yeah. you're going to pass it on to your boss and you're going to like cut out, you know, a whole other reams of bad news. <laughs> yeah. So like the people at the bottom and the people at the top never get to talk. Right. So, so the people at the top never know how much, how much the data has been altered when they get it. Yeah. But, but what you can see in the process is that everybody who passes information up the chain is basically trying to to make it less bad than what it than what they received. <laughs> That's fascinating. It's yeah. Just, yeah. 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 It keeps. Yeah. There's just no. There's no way to get out of this mess <clears throat> as a human species without it getting very messy at the EP. Like they have to be either disbanded or. Dissolve. There's no way to salvage this in the current system. Yeah. It's a machine. It's yeah, a, yeah. a part of the machine, right? Mm -hmm. And it's well, they're it's all just, implicated and, at this point. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just so fascinating that, and you know, we don't have to get into this too much, but how, you know, you can have like rednecks that understand this at, at an intuitive gut level that you can't trust governmental health organizations, mm -hmm. 
and then you have PhD scientists, mm -hmm. academics that you know go through just years of rigorous testing, and all that stuff, and they just either ignore it or just can't see it. You yeah. know, it's just and that's such a that's by that to me is by far the as an adult, uh, you know, from becoming going interested in science in high school and middle school and going to college and all these things was just the most fascinating experience to see just mm. how people like us, not that we're anything special, even that we can see this, this just this nightmare that's happening and everyone else is just completely silent about it or ignorant or head in the sand. And it's mm. just one of the most fascinating aspects of being a human to me. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's sad. Yeah. But mm. anyway, yeah. Well, I think that's, that might do it for us today. Uh, anything you want to add? Uh, no, no, we're, we're yeah. all good. I have much more to say, but but we can save it for another day. Absolutely. Well, we want to, we want to have you on with the. We're trying to get you with Serena and Glenn together. We'll we'll have to do that mm -hmm. uh, at some point. That'll We'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. 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 Um. So, Independent Science News is your main publishing website. I highly yeah. recommend you check it out, yeah. especially um. Pardon my cat. The, uh, especially the yeah. Just go there and Google poison or search poison papers on that website. Independent Science News. Yeah, the poison papers is not. Yeah, there there are lots of articles about the poison papers. Yeah, on the just to get a to get, get a get a dive yeah, yeah. In, to, to get your toes wet kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And then you also run the as a nonprofit the Bioscience Resource Project, uh, which is kind of an arm of it's another arm of what you do. Correct. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, the the Independent Science News is the publishing website, I guess, the sort yeah. of public website of the Bioscience Resource Project. But yeah, but there's information and resources on the Bioscience Resource website too. That's stuff about sewage sludge, for example. Yeah. Human genetics. Well, we, we were talking about yeah. Francis Collins. Yeah. Human genetics. There's and a resource page there that you you can follow up on some of the some of the weird and interesting uh, aspects of human genetics and how how it is that that people became so convinced that uh, human diseases and and uh, human characteristics are products of genetic difference and that, that's a big part of what you're currently working on to publish in the future correct i don't want to give too much away but you're yeah you're, we were, yeah, we were, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> another day yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, sure. that's my book project yeah awesome well, thank you, Dr. Latham. Thank you so much. Uh, hey, yeah, pleasure. always a pleasure having you on and, and seeing you. Yeah. Yeah. Take care, All right. All right. Take care. Ciao. Ciao.